So glad you're here. Can't wait to uh, continue with these ideas. Okay, so, so we're going to pick up from where we left off uh, last week. And uh, I'll do a, a, just a, a quick recap uh, uh, for those of you who uh, didn't have a chance to hear it or just uh, uh, want it just uh, fresh in your mind. And then we're, we're going we're gonna to continue with this. So basically, basically, what we're talking about is being an active participant in creating the world that you live in. So creating, creating the world that you live in. And what we talked about last week, uh, we called the class Uprooting the Idol Worship of Time. And it was really the connection between time or our, a, a deeper understanding of what time actually is and prayer and how these things uh, really interact. And I was going on uh, the, uh, the mimer of uh, Rabbi Moshe Shapiro uh, from Eretz Israel, and he was bringing a very, very deep concept into, um, into clarity. And basically, this idea is the following. Try and, try and concentrate, because if you, if you grasp this, you grasp something absolutely fundamental about the nature of this world, which is that many, many people believe that, that I'm going to pick up this book and give you an example, but what I'm about to say applies to everything in the world, okay? Except to God. So, 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 uh, a lot of people believe that this book exists right now. This book has a physical reality to it right now because it had a reality to it a moment ago. Another way of saying that is that a lot of people believe that just because this exists right now, it will continue to exist the next moment as long as someone doesn't come to destroy it. So another way of saying that is a belief in that objects have something called inherent existence. In other words, that it exists on its own. Once it's been created, it exists on its own. And it continues to exist because it existed. So, so we actually don't say that. So wait a second. So now this is, for most people, this is pulling the rug from out of what people's fundamental concept of reality is. What is our idea? Our notion is, and our, our, our tradition, our very strong tradition, we say that God brings the world into being every single moment. And he brings the world into being every single moment anew. Which means that if this exists right now, it only exists right now because God just recreated the entire world and he decided to make this exist. In other words, this doesn't exist right now because it existed in a moment before it exists right now because God just remade the entire world. And in the time that it's taking me to tell you this, millions of times this is happening, exactly what I'm telling you. God is recreating the world and each time he's recreating the world with these things in existence. So it's a brand new world every single moment. Okay. And if you want to hear uh, just one place where this idea is, to tell you how absolutely fundamental this idea is, we say this very idea two times in the morning prayers. Uh, from the time we say Baruch Hu, which is sort of the, you know, the opening call to prayer, to Shema, which is just you know, a couple of pages later, we say this idea explicitly twice. Here, listen. And in His goodness, God makes new the work of creation every day, constantly. 
Okay, so, so it's right there. And then we say it again uh, a few lines later. Um, so, so anyway, there you have this idea right in the sitter, and it's, uh, it's a very strong notion. So now, we were saying that if a person understands this, then it really empowers your power of prayer. Because if you, if you understand that a new world is about to be put into effect every single moment, each moment is an opportunity to pray for those things that you need, and a whole new world is being created, and God will be created with your needs met. So in terms of refuah, uh, healing, parnosa, livelihood, a shidduch, a marriage partner, children, whatever it is that a person needs, that they can, they can pray for it and they can understand that they're not trapped in this, in this causal reality. That everything, what's exile? Exile is this notion that everything is going to continue to be the way it is because that's the way it was. And I'm trapped and I'm locked into this notion of reality. Right? And so you become a prisoner in your circumstances. And so we're saying that this is the opposite of what's actually taking place. It's a brand new world every single moment. So we had to address the point, but, but wait a second, you see, how could it be if God is good, how can he be recreating the world with all this bad stuff in it every single moment, right? So there are a lot of answers to that question. One answer is, is that it's our job to complete the world. We say it all the time here. This is, you can't understand the world without understanding this point. The world is still in the process of being created. God made us partners with him to perfect and finish the world. Okay? But also, that when God brings in this new world every single moment, he looks to the world that existed the previous moment. And he sees how many merits are there in that previous creation. And so the new creation that he makes every single moment is based on the, the ongoing merits, the pluses and minuses that exist in the world the previous moment. And so the good that you do can help turn over the entire world. In other words, when you, when you do a mitzvah, now there's more good in the world. You've increased the good, you've lessened the bad, and now there's a whole new account which God can evaluate everyone's prayers that are being made. In other words, it doesn't just work for you. Like, okay, I did a mitzvah, now maybe I have a better chance of having my prayer uh, answered the next moment. Or I said a very sincere prayer, now maybe it will be answered the next moment. It's much more than that. You have created this this, 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 this giant plus where the whole world will be reevaluated the next moment, where everyone's prayers are up for grabs, and you can help shift the scales toward the positive so that everyone's needs are evaluated more favorably in the entire world. So it's, a, it's an amazing, empowering thought. Okay, so now, and we went into more detail last week, and if you can get the class, you'll, you'll hear more details and just the, 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 the depths of, of how this works exactly. Okay, so now I want to talk about how, how to apply this concept and how not to apply this concept. Because the reality is, is that if you really dwell on this and you don't understand how to integrate this into your life, it can make you insane. Okay, now I'm going to give you an example of how it can make you insane. This is a true story and it happened to me. Okay? Okay, now I'm not the insane person in this story. I should point that out. <laughs> But thanks for jumping to the opposite conclusion. <laughs> so, many years ago, 
I don't know how many years ago, maybe, let's say 15 years ago, I was in the Museum of Natural History in New York, and I was in the Hall of Dinosaurs, okay? And so uh, you've all probably seen it, or you've seen versions of it, or certainly you've seen it on TV, these giant skeletons of dinosaurs. And the Museum of Natural History in New York has a particularly good exhibit, and they had one, I don't know how high the ceiling is, it must be 50 feet high, the ceiling, it's a giant cavernous place, and this was the T-Rex, so this is the premier dinosaur in the Hall of Dinosaurs at probably the best one in the country, okay? So I'm standing in front of it. Now, I had just learned something recently, which you may or may not know. When I learned it, it came as a very big surprise to me, which is that when you look at these skeletons of dinosaurs, we, I think the average person in, you know, fairness, probably thinks, okay, they did an archaeological dig, they found all of these bones, and they assembled them, and here's the skeleton. That, that is a logical thing to think. The reality is, is that probably one, two, three of those bones were actually found. And then what they do is, they, they extrapolate on what the animal must have looked like based on those bones that were found, and bones in other areas that were, there, that were found. And so they, can, they make this conjecture about what it would look like, then, through just plaster, they make all the other bones, which are the vast majority of the bones in the structure itself, and then they make the, then they make the dinosaur, and they tell you that that's what the dinosaur looked like. Okay, fine. That's, that's fact. They'll tell you that. I'm not, I'm not giving you the inside secrets of the museums of natural history here. This is, you know, they don't run to the door to tell you this, but... <laughs> But they, they, won't, uh, they won't tell you what I just said isn't true. In fact, they'll tell you themselves, which is the next part of the story. So, I'm standing in front of the premier T-Rex dinosaur, and there's this, like, spaced-out-looking guy next to me, right? And um, he, you know, he looks like he might be interested in this thought, and I'm all alone, and as you know from if you've shown up here, if I learn something I like to share. <laughs> so, I just found out that most of these bones... Uh, you know, are about, you know, three weeks old as opposed to however old they're telling you they are. And so I tell him this thing, right? So he doesn't like this idea. <laughs> so he's like, you know, he's like very attached to the notion that this whole thing was found, you know, like wherever it was found, and that's what it is. So he says to me, no, no, no. <laughs> and I said, yeah. And he said, no. And then, okay, so now it's like a little tense between me and my new friend, you know? And, and we're, so we continue like to stand next to each other in front of this giant T-Rex in, in like this sort of like stony silence, right? Now I start reading the plaque, you know, the description that's right there, made by the museum, right there underneath at the base of the T-Rex of the thing. And it's this like paragraph of, I don't know, say 20 lines long, and in the middle of the paragraph, it says exactly what I had just said. It says it right there. That, that most of these bones are, I don't remember the exact language of it, most of the bones are not, were not, are not actual fossils, but that they did this conjecture and they produced them and that's what you're looking at. So I turned to my friend. <laughs> I said, you know, just, you might, just look over there. Read that. So, which was exactly what I had just said, and now this isn't some, you know, radical presenting it, this is the museum's words themselves. And then he, he reads it, and now listen to what he says, this is the reason why I'm telling you this whole story. He says to me, he acknowledges the fact that it's there. Then he says the following, 
he says, oh, okay. Well, I, you, you, you want to hear his defense? He says, because you said these words, that became reality and it was printed on the base of the dinosaur. So now let's think about that. Let's think about that for a moment. And the truth is, is as crazy as that sounds, the truth is, if you think about what we've been learning up until now, and now we're going to learn a Gomorrah to go more deeply into this in a second, but it's not exactly a groundless thing to say. As crazy, I think we all recognize that that's, that, that that's wrong, what he said. And yet, based on what we've been saying up until now, that God creates the world moment to moment, and he brings reality into the world moment to moment, why couldn't it be the case? Why couldn't God, nothing's hard for God, why couldn't God, after I said those words, I hadn't seen them there, he hadn't seen them there, why couldn't God bring the world into effect with those things written there? So now you see how this idea really can cause insanity, because it can really uproot your entire way of relating to reality. Okay. So now, now that we are, are, are talking about the a misapplication of this, let's now, whereas it seems to be consistent with the ideas that we just said, let's now learn out more deeply why we don't relate to reality in this way. Okay? So now, I want to turn to a, 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 a Mishnah in Gomorrah Brachas, on Daf Nun Dalit, 54, uh, Ahmed Aleph, right, right, right in the beginning. And right, it's a long Mishnah. Right in, the, right in the middle of this Mishnah, it says the following. It's talking about different blessings that we make and different prayers. And it says, if a person was coming along the road, okay, he's walking home, and he hears the sound of screaming in the city, and he says, may it be your will, he's praying to God, may it be your will, God, that this screaming is not taking place within my house. This is a prayer in vain. Zu tefila shav. Okay, so this isn't a prayer that a person is supposed to utter. So let me give you another version of this. I'll just, it's basically the same example, but maybe make it a little more specific and contemporary. A person's driving down their block or walking to their house or their apartment building, or whatever it is, and they see there's a fire engine, right, in front of their house. If a person, or in front of their apartment building, a person shouldn't pray, please God, don't let that uh, uh, ambulance, they see it in the distance, don't let that ambulance or fire truck be in front of my house. That's, that's not a proper prayer, says the Gomorrah. So now... Now, if you think about it, of course it's not a proper prayer, because it's already there, right? And yet, we have to ask ourselves, what's the Hava Mina? So Hava Mina, that's, that's, that's Gomorrah talk, for what would, what, bless you, what, what would I have thought? In other words, why is the Gomorrah telling me that this is not a proper prayer? What would I have thought otherwise? Right, right, right. So in other words, this is a, a variation of the dinosaur conversation. The, the Gomorrah is telling you that once something is in the world, 
Once something is in the world in terms of reality, quote-unquote, or nature, or whatever it is, once it exists, once it's already happened, once it's already happened is a, is a nice way of saying it, in terms of events, it's an improper prayer to say, please God, don't... Maybe it should turn out well. We can pray that if it's my house, please may no one get hurt. That would be a proper prayer. Or if it's anyone's house, please God, may the person be safe. But please God, may that fire not take place, which is taking place right now. That's an improper prayer. But why do we have to be told this at all? Because we have this Havamina that since God is recreating the world every single moment, surely God has the ability to recreate the world in which it hasn't happened. And yet, and yet the sages of the Gomorrah are telling us, don't relate to reality in this fashion because, and these are my words, it will induce insanity. It will induce a dysfunctional relationship with the normal course of nature. So let's review then. So what's a proper prayer? A proper prayer is everyone should be safe there. If it's my house, everyone should be safe. Or a proper prayer is, please God, bring healing to this person. Or bring children, or bring a shidduch, or bring livelihood to this person. Those are all proper prayers. But God, don't let this thing that's already happening not have happened. That's an improper prayer. Don't let this, don't let this dinosaur, which has already been made <laughs> with 97% <laughs> manufactured bones, be the case. No. No, that's not, that's not right. That's not right. Okay, so, okay. Let's, um, now let's go more deeply into, so hopefully that gives us a more grounded appreciation. We understand the gates, the ground rules of understanding what it means that God is recreating the world moment to moment. There's opportunities for prayer, massive opportunities for prayer, but not to misuse this idea and redirect it to trying to twist that which, which has already happened, events, okay? Hopefully that's clear in people's minds. Now, now I, want to, uh, I want to go a little bit further and uh, for, me, for me more deeply. So, there's, we talked about on a, on a, we've been talking about this on a micro level, on a personal level, this idea of bringing this new reality into effect the next moment uh, on the issue of prayer. Please, God, bring whatever this need is into the world. And those of you who were here last week heard a, a, a very amazing, very amazing thought from, from uh, the Chernobyl Rebbe, who says that just like God created the world using the letters of the Hebrew alphabet, which is 22 letters, when we open up our mouths in prayer, God is putting these same, because we're praying in Hebrew, ideally, all, all prayer is good in, in any language, but there's an extra added power to it if you can do it in Hebrew, because this is the, the wavelength through which God brought creation into effect. We've got the 22 letters of creation in our mouth, and then we can use them to bring this new world into effect. Okay? That's on an, on an individual level. So now I came across this in the Balaturim and it, it blew me away because, well, I'll just tell you. So 
it's in the beginning of Parsha's uh, Tazria, and it says the following, just a few psukim in, it's chapter 12, verse 3, it says, on the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. Okay, so here we have very clearly the, the mitzvah of, of bris milah. Now, now listen to what the Balaturim says. He says, this verse, it's uviyom uh, yimom basar arlasa. Okay? This, this, this verse, on the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised, has the same number of words and letters as the verse, Thus were finished the heavens and the earth and all their array. Okay, so that's a, that's a, that's, he just dropped a, a major bomb there. And I'm going to try to explain, I'm going to try to explain what he's just correlated there. Something really intense. Now, I'll just tell you what he says, because I'm going to say something different. He says, this indicates that uh, circumcision overrides the prohibition against drawing blood on Shabbos. So since you can't draw blood on Shabbos, you may, you may have thought that if someone's bris, is the, if, if the eighth day falls on Shabbos, that you can't, that that's a violation of Shabbos because you're going to draw blood. So this is saying, don't say that, you can have a bris on Shabbos. Okay, fine. That's what, he, that's, that, that's what he's written here. I want to I wanna, I wanna say something. Uh, so, so, so this is what we say by Kiddush. We're talking about Thus were finished the heavens and the earth in all their array. So that's a major pasuk, by the way. That's like one of these landmark psukim. That is, at, when, when Hashem is giving the account of creation, tells you, you know, this is, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and then he goes through, Hashem goes through what he did each, each day. On the first day God created this, on the second, and then he gets all the way up to the seventh day, when he finished creation, and he says these words, so this is this is like the climax of creation. This is the the the, the end, and vayichul hashemayim varitz, and God finished creation. Okay, so that's so. What does the eighth day, the circumcision of the eighth day, have to do with with vayichul finishing creation on the seventh day? And he goes further. He says one pasuk has five words, and the other pasuk has five words. And one Pusuk has 22 letters, and the other Pusuk has 22 letters. So it's like strong. Like these two things are like locked in. Same, same, same on both sides. Okay. So now, the truth is, is that you know the answer to this. Because it's what we've been saying up until now. But here we have like a, a strong Pusuk which says it. When God, what, what do we say in L'chadudi every single week? Sof Masay which means that, that God had in mind, before God started to create the world, God had in mind what he wanted the world to look like at the end. He had a clear picture. And the example that I always like to give, I heard, I don't remember from where, is that if you imagine the way an architect works, the first thing an architect envisions is what the house is supposed to look like at the end. Then he goes backwards and he figures out, how do I get to that finished thing? So God did the same thing. God envisioned a perfected world. That's what we're on the road toward inexorably. Even if it seems like we're having setbacks, no matter what it is, we are driving toward the perfection of the world 
every single moment. And every single moment is leading to it. And if you see the wicked prospering or injustice flourishing, you should know that's just God building up these people in order to knock it down for there to be a big overturn and a big reversal. So even though with your eyes it might look like evil is gaining, it's only in order to turn it over and then you'll see the advance of the good. Do you follow? That's just a way of, of understanding that every single moment we're driving toward the perfection of the world. Okay. So now, if that's the case, if the world that God really wanted to bring into effect hasn't been created yet, right? How can you say, how can the Torah say, which is God's own word, how can God say, on the seventh day, I finished the heavens and the earth? It's a big question, isn't it? How can, you say, how can God say, if, if, everything, if we're saying that God is still in the process of finishing the world, how can we say that on the seventh day God finished the world? So that's, I think, on a deeper level what the Balaturim is getting at over here. He's saying this thing, on the seventh day I completed the world, is exactly the same number of words and letters as on the eighth day you should circumcise yourself. Because what's this whole notion of circumcision? Circumcision is, don't you think, if God didn't want a a man to have a a foreskin, that God couldn't have created a man without a foreskin? It's like, I'm so good at kidneys and livers and toes. I'm like the best at toes. But like, foreskins, ah, just can't quite get that one down. All right, you take care of the foreskin. I'll provide you with the doctors and the knives and, you know, the gauze pads, the ointment. You, you do the foreskin part, though. Okay, so obviously, obviously God can make a person without a foreskin. Okay? So what, is, so, what is, so, what is he, so what does he ask us to do? This is one of the central teachings in the whole Torah. This is why verses are so holy. Because God says, I'm bringing the world 99. 9% into existence. I ask you to be my partner in willingly, in lovingly finishing off the world. You make the final touch. You make the final touch and that will finish the world. So in other words, so in other words, the world, and then, listen, the whole idea, you think bris is just for, uh, that's just a male concept? First of all, you should know that according to halacha, Jewish law, only a, only a kosher circumcision, a proper Torah circumcision, has to be done by someone who's already circumcised. Okay? So a woman is allowed by Jewish law to perform a circumcision. So it's not that a woman doesn't need a circumcision or that this law doesn't apply to her. She has the spiritual status of already having received one. This is another example of how, spiritually speaking, women are on, are on a higher level than men are. So by Jewish law, they are allowed to perform a circumcision, not because circumcision doesn't apply to them, because they're counted as already having this, this uh, aspect of themselves brought into effect. Okay. So now, so now let's just understand the full implication of what we just said. The Torah obviously is talking on many different levels. So, this world that we have around us, on the seventh day, was brought into being. So, what the Torah says is true. 
On the seventh day, God brought what we can see, what we can feel, what we can touch into effect. But by Yechulu, you think that he finished? No, 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 he didn't finish. Because everyone knows seven stands for this world, seven days of the week. And there are lots of seven, seven stands for this week. But eight, eight is what we call Lamala Minateva. Eight is one step higher. Eight stands for the supernatural. Eight stands for that world which is going to be brought into being. And so, and just a little sidebar, I think most of you know this, if you turn the number, just an interesting little thing, eight on its side, that's the symbol for infinity in mathematics. Right? So, so when will the world be finished? On the eighth day. When we do our part, that's the true finishing of the world. When we put in our part, that will be the true finishing of the world. And that's why on the seventh day, God created comp- creation has the same number of letters and words as on the eighth day performs circumcision. Because the true finish, the Torah is hinting at that the true finish of the world will be the perfection of the world and it will happen with our involvement. Everyone clear on that? So now, listen to this next step. Isn't it interesting that both of those pesukim have five words and 22 letters? So what are the five words? So the five words, five always stands for Torah, right? Because there are five books of the Torah. And 22 are the letters that God created the world with. So the first, so it's going on two different things. When it says the seventh day, five words, 22 letters, that means that God, through the kaychas of the Torah, through the power of the Torah, and the 22 letters contained within the Torah, brought this world into effect. And now we see on the macro level what our power of prayer is. God says, but this level of eight is also five words and 22 letters through the prayers that you will utter, through the mitzvahs that you'll do using the five books of the Torah and the 22 letters that you'll speak through your mouth, you will bring the perfected world into being. That's the macro level. And that's the other level of this thing that I wanted to bring out. So, our power of prayer, God gives us the ability to take these 22 letters and to bring not just a new world into effect that has our individual needs in it, but to bring the new world into effect, the perfected existence of creation into effect. And God gives us that power as well. Now, now I want to talk about... um, I want to talk about something else, which is how we create our own worlds with our words. And, and the power of Lush and Hara, the power of speaking ill. And why, uh, everyone should know, by the way, um, that, that there are all sorts of, uh, one, of the, one of the, an aspect of something about the Torah and, and, and Jewish law and, and, and just the holiness of it all that everyone should take tremendous pride in is that the Jewish people are the only people who have detailed laws of speech in the world. Um, Other religions have concepts of don't slander and don't gossip, but the level of detail that goes into our notion of what's proper to say and what's not proper to say and what we're permitted to say and not is unique in the world. And that's something to take tremendous pride over because because 
how we speak influences other people's realities. And, and let me give you some examples. We talked about it a little bit last week. But let me review and, and make it stronger and more specific to our lives. Um, you know, I gave an example, sort of like a, a bit of a whimsical example, that if, um, let's say you love steak and you hate broccoli, right? And you think all day that you're going to have broccoli for dinner. And you get yourself into a terrible mood and you're already hungry and you're already frustrated because you know you're having your worst dinner and you're going to have to eat it and you're mad and now you yell at someone and now you go because you know that you're not going to have enough to eat for dinner so you go and you stuff yourself and now you've got a stomach ache so now you've been yelling and you've got a stomach ache and everything like that and you walk to the dinner table and it's steak you, so that whole day that whole miserable existence that you lived you didn't have to live because it was always steak and you just thought it was broccoli so I wanted to say that that's objective reality and subjective reality. The objective reality of the world is that there's a happy ending. There's a happy ending at the end of each of our lives because we've got the next world. And even if your life is 100% legitimately glot miserable, right? <laughs> it, is, it actually is a certified miserable life, you know? We brought in the experts, yes, we stamp it with a big red M, you know? Nonetheless, there's still a happy ending. And what's the happy ending? It says in Perke Avos that imagine all of the pleasure that you ever had in your entire life, all together. It can't compare for a moment to one moment of bliss in the next world. So, so everyone wins. Everyone wins. You know? You just win. So that's the end of a person's life. And then we know God's going to perfect the world. So all of history becomes rectified. So there's a happy ending to history also. So there's a happy ending on an individual level and on a societal level. So now, if a person goes through life, if a person goes through life thinking broccoli, 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 well, what's the end of the story? Steak is the end of the story. So if the steak is the end of the story, what are you making yourself miserable for now? Right? Because there's a happy ending. Whether you want there to be one or not, there's a happy ending. So, yeah... Okay, so now, but you see, people, people, God gave us the ability to create our own reality in terms of not actual reality, but our perception of reality. My father, um, my father said uh, many times that, that in terms of treatment, he's a psychologist, in terms of treating people, you don't deal with the truth, you deal with people's perception of the truth, Right? Because if you just tell them, if someone, if, you know, if the biggest fashion model in the world comes into your office and says, she says, ah, I'm so ugly. You say, you're so ugly, you're not so ugly. You're on every cover of every magazine in the world. What are you saying you're ugly for? But that person doesn't hear it. They have to, they think they're ugly. So in their world, they're ugly. So then you have to say, okay, so why do you feel this way? You know, who made you feel this way? Why do you feel this way? And you, have to, and you have to go through it. You have to deal with people's perception of reality. Okay. So now, now we can understand a teaching from the Medrash. Uh, Rabbi Yeshua ben Levi says that v'zos that the, that the, the this thing, this is the Torah of the Mitzorah. It's, it's written in different ways. 
that the that this lashon, this is the Torah of the Mitzorah. The Mitzorah is Mitzorah is motzei ra ra bad leaves his mouth motzei. So so the the one who speaks ill bad is leaving his mouth. Now by the way, lashon hara can be true. So if you say something like, hey, you know that guy did time in jail, well. Wait, what are you telling me that for? It's true. It's not gossip. It's true. That's called Lashon Hara. In other words, something can be true and you're still not permitted to say it. Now, there are times where you, where you are permitted to say it. For instance, if you're, saying, if you're trying to fix up that person with another person, someone who marries that person should know whether that person did time or not. Right? But there, but there are ways to, to say that. Or if that person wants to go into business with that person, Again, the person should know if I'm trusting him with my money, I should know whether he's done time or not, whether he's fundamentally a trustworthy person or not. A person could have done time in jail and still be very trustworthy, but a person is permitted to have that information. So you have to know all the detailed things, when it's appropriate to say something, when it's not appropriate to say something. But know the fundamental point here, that just because something is true about something, someone else, doesn't mean that it's, not permiss- doesn't mean that it's permissible to say doesn't mean that it's permissible to say. Untrue things, for sure, but also true things. Not necessarily permissible to say. So now, why, why so many detailed laws about the way we speak? And now listen to this. So, so the Medrash says that, that it mentions this is the Torah of the one who speaks poorly five times to tell you five, remember we say always equals the number of books of the Torah. Five always equals Torah. That this person who speaks badly or impermissibly about someone, it's as if he violated the entire Torah. That is, if he's trying, and God created the world, we said, through the letters of the Torah. So the person who speaks badly, it's as if he's destroying the entire world. Now, you could say, wait a second, that's kind of harsh. You're telling me I said this thing, it's like I destroyed the whole world? How does that work? Why does that make any sense? And based on what we've been saying, you can understand how this makes perfect sense. If I come up to you, let's say someone doesn't like you. Why? I don't know. Why would someone say something like that? But let's say it's actually even true. Someone doesn't like you, okay? But you don't know that to be the case. So, so you go up to someone and you say to them, hey, that person doesn't like you. Now, all of a sudden, that person is seeing the world differently. That person now all of a sudden is insecure. Maybe, it, um, maybe they, they, stop, they start uh, having very negative feelings about their own self-esteem. Maybe they start imagining. That other guy, by the way, who doesn't like this person in the example, could be a total jerk. And it could be his problem. You may not have done anything wrong, by the way, in this example. But look at the, the effect that it has on the person who receives this negative piece of information. All of a sudden, the world that he existed in becomes transformed. The world that he existed in has been destroyed. And now his new perception of reality is warped. So this is why speaking ill about other people is like destroying the world. This is why a person has to be so careful. Because you are influencing the way another person understands the world in the deepest way. In the deepest way. Now, let's talk about perception. Let's talk about perception some more. And um, 
perception is really funny. Because just like a person can correctly or incorrectly perceive the world, right? Listen to now a very positive example of perceiving the world. And this is from a Rebbe Nachman story. And it's called The Sophisticate and the Simpleton. That's the English translation. And it's about, you know, some people get too fancy for their own good, right? And it's sort of like if, uh, you know, if, uh, if, the, if the piece of clothing doesn't have this label on it, you know, they can't imagine that they'd ever wear it. Or if this, if this food doesn't, if it's, not a, if it's not a national brand, you know what I mean? Like, I can't take it. I, I just can't take it. You know what I mean? So it's like people, people have like, sometimes they can sort of price themselves out of the market, so to speak. You know what I mean? And then they only like expensive stuff and then they're miserable when they have cheap stuff, right? So it's like, ah, okay, now, now I'm going to tell you the opposite story. Listen to this. So, so that's the sophisticate. That's a, Rabbi Nachman tart, starts talking about the sophisticate and how he's a very gifted person and he accomplishes so much. But the problem is, is that he makes a trap for himself. Now that he's so accomplished, nothing is good enough for him. Okay? And so he becomes miserable. It's a, it's a, uh, it's a terrible irony that happens to people. They become very successful and then that success becomes a trap for them. Okay. So now listen to the other side. He's talking about the simple person. Uh, and he says he was always very happy and filled with joy at all times. Now listen to this. Now this person, the simple person, is utterly poor. Okay? He had every type of food, drink, and clothing. Now wait a second. He's utterly poor. So he didn't have every type of food, drink, and clothing. But this is his perception of reality. He had every type of food, drink, and clothing. He would say to his wife, My wife, give me something to eat. She would give him a piece of bread and he would eat it. Then he would say, give me some soup with kasha. Kasha is like a, a grain, right? And she would cut him another slice of bread. He would eat it and speak highly of it, saying, how nice and delicious this soup is. <laughs> he would then ask her for some meat and other good food. And each time he asked, she would give him a piece of bread. He would enjoy it very much and praise the food very highly saying how well prepared and delicious it was. It was as if he were actually eating the food he had asked for. Yeah. Actually, when he ate the bread, he would taste in it any kind of food he wanted. This was because of his simplicity and great happiness. He would also ask his wife, My wife, bring me a drink of beer. She would, drink, she would bring him some water. But he would praise it and say, How delicious this beer is. Give me some honey wine. She would give him water, and he would speak highly of it. Give me some wine or other beverages. Each time she would give him water, but he would enjoy it and praise the beverage as if he were actually drinking it. The same was true of clothing. Between them, the only outer garment, bless you, he and his wife had was a sheepskin coat. Whenever he wanted to go to the market, he would say to his wife, give me the sheepskin, and she would give it to him. When he wanted to wear a fur coat to visit people, he would say, my wife, Give me my fur coat. She would give him the sheepskin, but he would enjoy it and praise it, saying, what a nice coat this is. When he needed a, a capota, like a, they say captain here, but that's like the long silk garment, to go to a shul, he would ask her, my wife, give me the bekisher. She would give him the sheepskin, and he would praise it. What a nice, beautiful bekisher this is. So, 
So, uh, and in this way, he was always filled with happiness and joy. Okay, so, 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 I was thinking about this, and um, I think on one level, on one level, Rabbi Nachman is bringing out something very deep. And I think that what he's hinting at, on one level, is the power of anticipation. Now, I think all of us are acquainted with one of the great um, maddening aspects of the human condition, which is that we uh, oftentimes, our expectations for something, whatever it is, are never as good as the thing itself, right? You know, and you could go through any list of whatever it's going to be, and you work up in your mind every, like, conceivable aspect of the pleasure of whatever it's going to be, and then it actually happens, and it's almost always disappointing. (laughs) And then sometimes afterwards you say to yourself, why did I, how could I even have, you know, demented my mind to bring me to this place when it was only going to be this anyway. So, imagine, imagine if a person through spiritual self-mastery was able to have the best of both worlds. They were able to have all of the fun of anticipation, right? All of the pleasure of the anticipation of the event and have that as an independent thing which isn't knocked out by the event itself. That's, what, that's one aspect of what this person, this simple person, and simple is, is being used as the greatest compliment in the world. This simple person is able to harness all of the pleasure and greatness of anticipation while not being disappointed by the event itself. And how does a person get to that place? And it's by seeing the good in absolutely everything. That's how you get to that place. And Adam, I have to thank you for bringing down this Rebbe Nachman Torah yesterday, that if you look at someone and you don't see anything good in them, Rebbe Nachman says you have to follow them all day. Because <laughs> they're going to do something good and you'll see that you are wrong. <laughs> that there is something good in that person. And so, this is one of the absolute gateways to, to, uh, to making breakthroughs in life. Someone says something bad about someone else, if you're accustomed to just accepting it, and not just accepting it, but building on it, ha, you think he's a rat because he did this? I'll tell you really why he's a low life. And then, so, if you're, if you're used to uh, adding on to negative things that you hear about other people, don't add on. If you're used to just accepting all the negative things that you hear about people at face value, say, say, how do you know it's true? Even if you think it's true, force yourself to say the words, how do you think it's true? It will have a redemptive effect on you. And you know, sometimes when you do the right thing, for the first time, or you try to habitualize yourself to do the right thing, sometimes in the beginning it feels very alien and foreign and you feel like, this isn't me. 
But think of this example. Imagine you're wearing your pants on your head your whole life, right? And then all of a sudden, you start wearing them around your waist. And you're walking around the first couple of days saying, this isn't me, this isn't me, this doesn't feel right. The reason why it doesn't feel right is because it's new to you, not because it isn't right. (laughs) And sometimes it might take a while before it feels right. (laughs) And sometimes it'll never feel right. (laughs) But trust, trust that God knows what He's doing. So, so, uh, so Hashem should bless us all that that we should really look for the good in everything. Actively seek out the good. And not routinely and lazily just accept all the negativity that comes our way. Because there's no shortage of negativity that people want to hand you. You know? And they'll try to stuff it in your pocket if you don't accept it willingly. Just, you know, just, just say no. Just say no. Wow, I said that naturally. Wow, that was weird. I guess that was a good ad campaign. <laughs> you know? And uh, also understand that the world really is being created moment to moment. And that God put the power in your mouth through prayer, through good deeds, and everything like that to bring in a new world into effect. And that that new world is going to help everyone's prayers in the next moment of creation. And that this isn't just on an individual level, this is on a macro level in terms of really finishing up the world, bringing this, this, this level of seven, the completion of the world as we know it right now, up to the next stage. And that we should all be able to share it and to celebrate with each other in Yerushalayim with the Beis HaMikdash. Yeah. Amen.